Next Chapter Podcasts. Happy Halloween, you guys and ghouls. On this hallowed day, we're going to do what we do best. Talk about monsters that suck and eat. <laughs> and I'm not talking about your ex. Zang. This is Indecent with Kiki Anderson, the podcast where we peel out the wallpaper of polite society. Last time, we talked with the host of American Hysteria, Chelsea Weber-Smith, about how, apparently, evil lurks around every corner in this country. People find comfort in the idea that even if there is some elite society that controls the world, at least someone controls the world. Um, and we're not in this like absolute chaos, uh, which can really scare people. And so having that like easy symbol of evil, you get to be the good guy, all the people on your team get to be heroes against this ultimate evil. Um, and I think that's very attractive. Uh, I know if I, you know, had <laughs> if I had a different background, maybe I would be attracted to a simple story like that. But the thing is, the United States of America is far from the only place on Earth where hideous creatures stalk us from the shadows. Monsters are timeless. There are abominations that have torn us apart far longer than the ones in our news cycle, sucking out our souls, our blood, and our feet. I can't tell if you're joking or not. Before there was Dracula, a legendary Iranian monster dating back hundreds of years supposedly slurped out our juices through our heels using its tongue. Kinky. This terror had the face of a cat, the body of a reptile, and a shark's head on the end of its tail. You get the idea. These things are pretty universal. Everyone's got their myth about something that comes in the night to drain our life force. However, they don't all look like Brad Pitt in Interview with a Vampire. In Bali, the layak is just a floating, ugly head with bulging eyes, tusk, and its own bloody internal organs hanging from its severed neck hole. And in ancient Mesopotamia, they believed evil spirits trying to steal your soul disguised themselves as, I shit thee not, a strong gust of wind. Thank God we live in the 21st century where we have more normal things to worry about, like popcorn lung from vape pens and the start of World War III. <coughs> Still, the dominant image most of us probably think about when we think of vampires is a sexy, vaguely Eastern European aristocrat who's desperately in need of a tanning bed. I bid you welcome. That's mostly thanks to Bela Lugosi's brilliant performance as the Count in the 1931 movie adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Children of the night, what music they make. It created the mold for thousands of other versions of fanged freaks to come and all their varying degrees of horniness. Although, while it is a truly original story, it's also kind of one of the earliest examples of writers mining existent IP to create a blockbuster. Now, I know that there's more than one of you nerds out there that have heard of Vlad the Impaler, the 15th century Romanian king, whose favorite hobby was sticking sharpened poles up people's butts. Ouch! Or Elizabeth Bathory, the 16th century Romanian countess, whose secret beauty treatment was bathing in young girls' blood. Ugh, if Hollywood could, they would. But Bram Stoker went even deeper into Slavic lore for inspiration when he was writing his book. All of the stuff about garlic and steaks through the heart, that had all been around for a long time. And apparently pre-Christianity, Slavs burned their dead. So when the Slavs converted, they literally weren't used to being around dead bodies for a very long time. Now all of a sudden they were told to start burying them, and they thought, oh my god, these bodies are bloated. 
Clearly, they've been eating. Duh, that's why the corpses look the way they do. Clearly, they've been sucking blood out of other living human beings. That makes sense. What really got Stoker's motor going, though, was reading about a wave of people in New England that were digging up the corpses of suspected vampires and cutting out and burning their hearts back in 1896. See, vampires were often blamed for outbreaks of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was also something that the medical community often blamed on poor people due to their lazy drunkenness. Cause you know, the hustle bro grind set has been around way longer than alpha male influencers like the talking ball sack, Andrew Tate. I'm risking cancer to look like a mafia boss. Fine. The funny thing is, another big cause for belief in vampires may be two other diseases, rabies and pellagra. Rabies makes you wanna bite people, and pellagra is a disease that's caused by a diet that's too heavy in corn and alcohol, making your skin pale and sensitive to sunlight, and it gives you horrible breath. The disease became more and more widespread once the US started exporting crops to Europe. Corn and alcoholism, that's what America does best, baby. It's far from the only instance of monsters being a reflection of our inner ugliness. Fear of witches has been a way of controlling outspoken, unruly, and maybe even just annoying women around the world forever. Despite author H.P. Lovecraft being considered one of the greatest horror writers of the 20th century, some of his stories are either thinly veiled allegories for xenophobia or they're just flat out racist. And hell, people even used to think Jews had fucking horns and hooves. And let me just say, as a Jew, I would look cute as shit with horns and hooves. So y'all have been spared, okay? You're lucky I don't have horns and hooves. I would be a menace to society. I would be unstoppable. You would all be so horny, you would cry. Anyway, so why do we love terrifying creatures like zombies and werewolves so much? Especially when they often have really dark roots. How is it so easy for us to reduce people we don't like to howling beasts? And what do the things that we like to be spooked by say about us? To get a better idea about all that and more, we spoke to writer and folklore researcher J.W. Ocker. In addition to hosting and writing his blog and podcast, Odd Things I've Seen, J.W. is an Edgar Award-winning author of several horror novels, as well as the book The United States of Cryptids, a tour of American myths and monsters and he introduced me to all sorts of bone-chilling children of the night. Hi, JW, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, Kiki. This sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about like yourself. Like, Where did your obsession with monsters come from? So I had them from a kid. So I remember like just as a very young child being obsessed with like, you know, Godzilla uh, movies and like Chewbacca was my favorite Star Wars character. And then it kind of stopped for a while because I, I grew up a fundamentalist Christian, right? So we don't, we, the monsters we do there are like demons and stuff, which is, you know, their own thing and real things back in, in that mythology. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always been fascinated by them, but it just took me a while to get to them. And then once I kind of got out of religion, I was back to like monsters. I just wanted monsters for, to me, like they're like almost ultimate expressions of creativity for humans, which sounds dumb, but like we're making up new creatures when we make them a new monster. We rarely make up new nice creatures, like unicorns maybe, that kinds of things, but mostly we're making up monsters. And that is such an expression of creativity to me that like that appeals to me that I always get happy when I see a new monster, even if it's scaring me to death, whatever. It's like it's like great exercise in creativity. So what makes a monster? It's a good question. I think there's a level of grotesquerie that has to happen, right? So there's two levels of grotesquerie, right? There's the exterior grotesquerie. You put tusks and fangs and like scales and things on the outside of it and you get that's a monster however not always right we have this trope of the misunderstood monster right frankenstein's monster is technically not a monster it's just a misunderstood being 
but we still call him a monster because he has, you know, cadaver parts and scars. But then you take a serial killer or maybe a fictional one like Patrick Bateman, right? Looks great on the outside, but inside he's a monster. So there's this grotesquerie inside of him that makes him the monster. And we call Ted Bundy a monster, those, those kind of people. So it, I think it's literally just as a grotesqueness to the, a grotesqueness and a perceived danger to them, right? Because Frankenstein, even though he was misunderstood, he was still a danger. Like he threw that kid, <laughs> threw that, that, that girl right in the water. So that's what it is. It's grotesquerie that yields danger, I think, makes, makes a monster. You know, that's funny because when we were talking in our like pre-production meeting about this interview, um, we were kind of talking about serial killers and monsters and vampires. And I was like, why do scary things always have to be hot like Frankenstein? And my producers were like, Frankenstein is not hot. And I'm like, yes, he is. He's a tall, dark, handsome, mysterious man. Tall, dark, yeah, tall, dark and handsome. That, that's, that's, I've never thought about Frankenstein that way, but I think you're right. Again, you take away a few of those scars, the bolts or whatever on his neck, and you got, you got a stud for sure. So would you say when you talk about grotesque, I mean... If something is physically appealing, like like I would say Chewbacca looks cute almost, or Jeffrey Dahmer is a handsome man, can grotesque be their motive or like their lack of rationale? Possibly. I know we use it like a metaphor, right? We call, you know, sadistic dictators monsters, even if they're just regular looking human beings with a lot of power. So 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 there's so I guess that's the other thing, right? There's literal monsters and there's metaphorical monsters. And again, with with the Dahmers, the serial killers, the genocidal dictators, they're still human beings. They're 100% human beings. But we don't know how to deal with that, I don't think. So we have to pretend, not pretend, we have to call them monsters to separate them from like you and I, assuming you're not a genocidal dictator or a serial killer. Um, and, and me too, I guess. But um, <laughs> we have to like, we have to like put them in a different category. And monsters really are a category of other. We always do that. You know, they're, they're other than us. And that's what kind of makes them a monster to us. I think that's probably also some of the seeds of like prejudice and bias and stuff is that like somebody is other than us and that makes them, you know, an unknown quantity or we're fearful of them for whatever reasons, valid or non. And it makes them monstrous to us, I guess. Anything, maybe it's it. Maybe we're so vain. It's anything that's not us is a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where the inspiration for this episode came from. Cause I had been talking to somebody about that otherization. I'm Jewish. And I was like, yeah, well you see like a lot of like goblins and stuff that have big noses. Like, Oh, clearly they were created because somebody hated Jews, you know? <laughs> the Hogwarts stuff, yeah. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and also vampires. There's a, there's a whole um, idea around vampires having anti at least Eastern European vampires having uh, anti-Semitic roots. I mean, realistically, vampires as a concept, and even um, goblins as a concept, is pretty universal. Most cultures have them, um, even cultures that have never been around, <laughs> been around uh, Jews. But um, you can use, people can use those to, you know, commit harm, you know, commit harm to, to other people's. You often see this with caricatures, right? They always make other people or other races or other groups or other ethnicities. They, 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 the cartoonists tweak them in certain ways to make them look less human, right? Point your ears or make their eyebrows do certain things to make them look evil or not human. And that's what it is, right? It's dehumanizing other people. So that's another, maybe that's another, maybe that's another good definition of monster. I mean, we're just, we're just building definitions out of the air here. But <laughs> maybe that's another good definition of monster is like dehumanize, a dehumanized entity, um, which would fit, I guess, everything from a werewolf to, you know, again, using it to prejudice against other people, um, just making them not, again, not like you, <laughs> as long as they're not like you, you're the non, you're the only non-monster in the story, right? Everybody else is a monster. Right. That's interesting though, because I feel like if we're talking about like dictators or serial killers, that might even be like a cop-out because it's like, well, no, they're still human. You can't other them because then you don't hold them accountable. 
Yeah, that, and that's the whole idea behind like Jekyll and Hyde, right? Robert Louis Stevenson's story about a, a very intelligent doctor who becomes a monster because, you know, it was like one, he was, you know, and the whole story is, is he enacting out his fantasies or did he just completely 100% become inhuman? And of course, it's vague and purpose because nobody knows the answer. But yeah, like what made Hitler bad or what, not to draw, I hate dropping Hitler's name, but what made him bad and what made, you know, the serial killer bad and what made, you know, any other, you know, hardened criminal that inflicts harm on people bad life, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, they're just still human. Nothing, nothing in their cells, nothing in their physical structure changed to make them less than what we are. Right. You put us both on the table and, and, and autopsy us and it's a hundred percent human both places. It's just, for some reason, we have the capability to do monstrous things to each other. Right. That's another thing is like, this world that we live in now is so scary. I mean, you just have to turn on the news and it's a nightmare scenario. So is it harder to scare people now? There's, there's a lot of thinking in the horror community, the, the horror writers, about, about what that means. A lot of people think that when the world gets really scary, then horror becomes more popular. And horror is super, super popular right now um, because it's a way to deal with fears um, in a way that's not as blatant as real life. Not as scary. Put it that way. Like, again, sometimes you'd rather be fighting a vampire than, you know, trying to find the money to pay your bills in a down economy, right? It's just a, it's just a better way to deal with your fears. And I'm a children's horror writer, so I have to, I'm scaring children all the time. And generally what I'm doing there is, you know, just trying to scare them, honestly. But, but you can also see it if, if I want to like make it altruistic or whatever, some kind of noble cause, it's, it's giving them the ability to deal with real life fears, right? If they can see a kid, um, you know, extinguish a ghost then that gives them the ability to later on, I mean, again, the giant steps here, but later on when something makes them scared in real life to deal with that. So I think the scarier the times, usually the better our horror, because when everybody's happy, well, there's probably not a time in history when everybody's happy. I don't know what happens when that happens, but generally the most turbulent stuff, you know, yields the best horror stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel, I'm 31 and I feel like horror has evolved in my lifetime. Like it used to be, teen slasher flicks that, you know, it was like, oh, these teens are being bad. Now they're all going to get murdered. <laughs> and now it's like things like Saw that they have no real motive. It's just really like gory and gross. Or it's like Jordan Peele. It's almost like a parable in society. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think over the past, you know, decade or two, horror has kind of kind of um, become more accepted as a tool, I think. Um, it's more... For, for I think the best example is Stephen King, right? Stephen King during the 80s and 90s. Super productive, movies being made everywhere, but the literary established kind of, establishment kind of frowned on him. Like, ah, oh, you're doing horror and whatever. These days, though, he's like an elder statesman of literature. He's up there with all the big American names. And that's because I don't think it's that we become, like the mainstream has become more welcoming of horror. I think they just don't differentiate anymore. It's, it's all kind of like, you know, at one point, one point in time, Barnes and Nobles got rid of the horror section and just kind of, Put all the books into into fiction, right? Because again, you know, it's it's another type of another type of drama, really. At the end of the day, these days, though, I think about a year or two ago, they started making horror sections again because horror was so prominent. But I think I think it is there has been an evol not evolution. I don't know what the word is, but there has been a change toward horror. Our attitude to it, our attitude toward how we make it. People who would normally not do a horror movie are now dabbling in it. So I think there is, you know, again, I don't know if it's a hunger for it or a realization on the artist side that this is a very powerful tool to to horrify people, but you're right. Uh, there's been a change, uh, I think for the better, um, other than the fact that I'm like that curmudgeon that likes it when it's like my little thing in a corner and everybody doesn't like it. Um, and then you watch like Peel again, Peel's one of the best directors of recent times making three just bangers of movies that are 
amazing. And you're like, man, no, I'm kind of happy that like people, like people in the upper echelons, right, are making, are going crazy with horror. It's, it's a lot of fun. Wait, so what? what is scary to you as a horror writer? <laughs> man, it's all the existential stuff, honestly. Like, so I can freak myself out in the house by myself. For sure. Like I live in a black house on the edge of the woods. And if I let my imagination go a little too crazy, I can, I'll start hearing noises in the fan or imagining faces in the window. So I can freak myself out just randomly. But the stuff that's, that scares me is the existential stuff, right? Like the idea like that suddenly your consciousness just turns off. It's gonzo, right? That is like, makes me, <laughs> makes me start suffocating and like, oh, or the idea of like, you know, people you love getting hurt. That's like a constant like worry for me. Um, those are, those are the big, and it's almost a cliche answer, I guess, but those are actually what scare me. Those are what keep me up at night. Those are what actually gives me ulcers and you know, makes me want to go to a therapist, right? Um, but other things like, you know, monsters and things that go bump in the night, uh, less so. Again, unless I'm in the right mood and like, I just freak out a little bit. Yeah. Well, you're living by the woods. You're so, you're like on brand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But you write for kids. So, you know, kids don't totally have a perspective on how scary the world is quite yet. What scares a kid? I feel like it's usually pretty classic, like just things under their bed. I think anything can. I mean, we all grew up, right? Um, they call it kinder trauma these days, I think, where like just random snatches of a movie you saw that wasn't even a horror movie or random memory you had will like haunt you the rest of your life. So I think that's kind of what kids are. In a way, everything scares them but nothing scares them. But what I really like about writing for kids in this, in this context is that horror is just another, it's honestly just the other side of the cord from wonder. Uh, wonder is the ability to like, oh, this stuff exists, it's awesome. Horror is like, oh, this stuff exists, that's, that's scary. It's like, so the way awesome means both like really great, but also really terrifying. And kids have an unending, um, insatiable appetite for wonder. They just, they're like, all, every new thing you show a kid, they're like, what? You know, it just it blows their everything from a, like a ballpoint pen to whatever, uh, you know, somebody juggling Kleenexes. It just blows kids' minds. And they're the same with horror, right? And I kind of get kind of frustrated sometimes when we give them the same old monsters that we had. Here's a werewolf story. Here's a vampire. Their taste for horror, that give them anything. This is the, this is, I'll say this, this is the audience to experiment with because they'll take it on all, on face value. They're like, oh, you're, you're giving me something nobody's ever seen before. I'll take it. It probably is going to scare me. So I want to pivot a little bit to like monsters that have cult followings like Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptids, yeah. Yeah, cryptids. What, what's that about? Like, is that, is it an obsession with science? Like, no, we don't know everything or is it a spiritual thing? Like there's something bigger than us? Like wh where does that come from? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll take you, give you two answers. I'll give you a grand answer and then a much more close to the ground answer. So the grand answer is, yeah, it's wonder. Like we don't want, I mean, I don't want to live in a world where we've already cataloged everything into like phylum, strata, family, kingdom. We found everything on the planet. That's like a boring world to me um and to most people so when i when i hear somebody's a, a squatcher they're going out trying to find sasquatch a lot of people think of them as like crazy right tinfoil hat wearing people out there like knocking bats on bricks and leaving out beef jerky or whatever they leave out to, to like catch a squatch but to me they're, they're they're not crazy they're hopeful they do not want the world to be mundane they don't want to be completely explored they want there to be new discoveries right but that that's that's a very humanistic we want there to be new discoveries so I think that's what cryptids are at base. They're just a wonder concept. They're like, you know, again, I want there to be new animals found in the water. I want there to be new animals found in the forest. I, I, I don't want us to know everything. If you know everything, then it's it, the world becomes such a smaller place and a more boring place, really. So I think that's it. I think it's the wonder. But on the ground, though, what I love about cryptids um, as a very special category of monster, and they are monsters, 
is they're real. <laughs> and what I mean by that is something happened. So if you read the, the golden age of cryptids was probably the 50s or 70s. Something happened to kick off an entire mania. That mania might have lasted two weeks, a month, a year, two years. But the newspapers, the local newspapers cover it every single day. Like uh, when I when I wrote the United States of Cryptids, for the first time ever, I would say 90% of my research was just newspaper based. I just had to go to the original accounts by the media. And every day they'd, be, they'd tell you new stories like, oh, it was cited over here or this turned out to be a hoax or we're, we're, we're throwing a sale, half off all guns or if you want to go, go find the hodag or whatever. So something happened. Maybe it was a hoax. Maybe it was a misidentification. Maybe it was a real creature. We don't know what it is. Maybe it was some mutated regular creature. But something was seen to kick off a real event, a historical event. It happened. It was history. Whereas with like, say, ghosts, which, which is a similar phenomenon where people run out of house, run out of a house saying this house is haunted. We don't really believe that. We don't really do like year long exposés on that house. like mainstream media doesn't. Um, whereas, again, somebody saw a five legged cougar out in the bush. Suddenly we got like chupacabra articles everywhere. So I think it's those two things. Wonder that the world isn't yet fully cataloged. And two, something does happen, again, in the forest. In the water, something does happen, and that kicks off something real, a historical event. That's the cool thing about horror. It's both ancient and modern, tied to the past and plugged into the present moment. And because we here at Indecent like to keep our finger on the pulse and prostate of popular culture, we wanted to know what's out there on the raw edge of myth-making. Thanks to the internet, whole communities have formed on Discord threads and in subreddits dedicated to spinning new sinister yarns. For example, Creepypasta, which is a kind of online storytelling where totally original, urban legend-like narratives reach viral meme status and blur the lines between truth and fiction, giving birth to shit like Slenderman. My producer Pete used to co-host a podcast all about this kind of thing called Spooky Stuff alongside a very funny comedian named Sandy Benton. So we asked her to come on the show and regale us with a story that's sure to keep you up at night. Hi, I'm Sandy. Um, I've been asked to pick a scary story or urban legend uh, that I think is really funny and talk about what I think is so funny about it. And I said, yes, of course, I love attention. What I didn't say was, I don't think any scary stories are funny. I take them all incredibly seriously, and I think everyone else should too. And I think the fact that the person who asked me to do this thinks it's funny just shows how much at risk they are of being potentially murdered by a ghost. So good luck, Pete. Instead, I picked one of the most horrifying short stories I can think of, uh, a creepypasta called Squidward Suicide. Squidward Suicide is a short internet horror story uh, from the point of view of an intern at Nickelodeon who is working on the show SpongeBob SquarePants. When one day, while he's sitting with all of his coworkers, someone brings in an unaired episode uh, that no one seems to have worked on. And the episode is extremely upsetting. It uh, starts with Squidward performing a concert for his friends and everyone starts booing at him. He's very upset, he starts crying. Um, you know, we've all been there, Squidward. It's why I don't perform solo clarinet concerts for my friends. It's a, it's a real swing. So we move from this unsuccessful concert to just the most horrifying imagery you can think of. It is Squidward crying and then interspersed with that, it's like pictures of murdered children that it's kind of implied that the murderer took the picture. It's very upsetting. 
everyone in the animation studio is getting upset. No one knows what's going on. The whole thing ends with Squidward killing himself. Uh, and it's, and that's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> it's really upsetting. The last line of the short story itself says, I never believed in unexplainable phenomena before, but now that I have something happen and can't prove anything about it beyond anecdotal evidence, I think twice about things. And I do think there's something beautiful about, you know, being able to really find maybe a sense of God or a sense of something greater in a in a really horrific alternate reality version of SpongeBob SquarePants. Cause you know, everyone, everyone finds it somewhere different, somewhere unique to them. Well, the content itself isn't funny. I think some of the aftermath of the story is a little bit funny. So this whole thing comes out, gets really big and it gets big to the point where the creator of SpongeBob SquarePants has to come out and say that it's not canon. This is not a canon story. It's not part of SpongeBob canon, which is absolutely insane. The main reason he had to do that was because in later seasons, uh, this got so big that the animators of the actual SpongeBob show put a reference to Squidward's suicide into the actual show. Makes sense to me. They had to remove it like kind of immediately, but it is now mixed in with like, is this canon? Is this not canon? So he had to come out and say, it's not canon. So sorry to all you sponge heads out there. It's still in the realm of really troubling fan fiction. Um, so this is our impulse. Our impulse is to just make everything horrifying. And I guess that's funny. The moral of this tale is don't laugh at horrifying things, all right? You might get murdered. I know that I didn't list any evidence for that, but it's how I live my life and it's how I think you should live your life too. So, good luck to us all. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sandy. And oh my God, look behind you. Just kidding. Now back to JW. Do you think it's like now that we live in the age of the Internet where we have like Google satellite maps and we have Twitter, how does that affect our fascination with things? Does it amplify the fascination or does it like squander it? It lowers the bar. <laughs> like I always joke that so I'm a travel writer as well. And that's how I got my start. Um, I wouldn't be a travel writer if I started 10 years before Google Maps. You know, I just I, I can't find I can't read a map. I don't know. Car right now, I don't know which way is north. I've been in this house for eight years. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell my left or my right without thinking about it for five seconds. But because I have GPS and because I have Google Maps and because I have um, all, all this research out there already, I can find any square inch of land on the entire planet and get there. You know, no problem. So it does lower the bar to like for lazy asses like me to be able to be part of that, you know, part of the fun. Um, but it also makes it. I don't know, more participatory. Um, again, that could be bad or good. We always see the after like a major crime or event happens, everybody on Reddit is like, whatever, backseat uh, private investigator. So it's kind of a bad thing. But to find a cryptid before the advent of the internet, right? Which, you know, Lauren Coleman is one of the foremost cryptozoologists on the planet. He's been doing it since, you know, I don't know, 40s, 50s. I can't remember. He would have to hear about it through the newspaper somehow or random word of mouth. 
drive out to whatever town that was, ask gas station attendants and random passersbys and, you know, hey, I heard this happened. Who did it? And then go find those original people and interview them and then go look at the actual spot where it happened and do actual work, actual investigative work to put together a story of what happened. Whereas today, you know, I just have to look at 10 newspaper articles, check Twitter, and <laughs> I, can, I can write an article about it. And it makes you think you're, you're seeing more of the planet than you are. When the reality is, you have no idea. It's like being inside somebody's head. You can like hang out with somebody for 15 years and still not know that person. You can Google Earth for a decade and still not know even your own town, for goodness sake. So it just, it, just, it just makes it more deceptively easy. Where again, the real people doing the real work are out, and I'm not one of them, are out there getting dirty and like asking the right questions of the right people and, and really doing actual work. But again, also using those same tools we are because those tools are valuable tools. Yeah. But I just feel like, okay, when that guy gave that testimony in Congress about the aliens, I have my own doubts about him. I don't know why we just decided that we believe this guy, but it was like it lasted for like a day and then we just moved on. <laughs> yeah. No, this is the most frustrating thing to me on the planet, right? We have been the in the world of aliens. We, in the past five, six, seven years, we have had everything we've ever asked for. From, right? Government is releasing classified documents and interviews and footage. We have people in the halls of our political institutions talking about aliens and stuff. And nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, and maybe this is maybe this is part of our like shortening attention spans. We're only interested in something for 24 hours. But aliens, we're only interested in aliens for 24. I get it. If the latest song, the latest episode of TV, um, the latest, you know, misstep by a celebrity on Twitter, 24 hours, great. But man, aliens, we're, that's also part of the chewed up cycle of like, just we, just, we don't care what we're chewing up. Just give us tons of information to chew up to talk about for a couple hours. It just, I don't know, I don't know, it's very depressing when I hear that, right? It's like, um, it, it's, it, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's the opposite of what we've been talking about, wonder, right? Wonder is saying, oh, oh, wait, there's a guy sitting in front of our elected politicians talking about aliens. Uh -huh. That's crazy. We should think about that for a while. How do we get here? How does it, that, like a child, like, oh, that's awesome. Right. Oh, no, like, uh, we read the headline, and again, I'm guilty of this as well, read the headline and keep going to the next headline. Oh, aliens in Congress? Next headline, right? Oh, next in bo alien bodies in Mexico? Oh, next headline, right? You know, so it's, it's uh, there's something like maybe fundamentally we just don't actually believe it or or, or, or we can get, we can jump to the answer really fast because we've been through news cycles. The, the modern, the modern generations have been through news cycles so often we kind of know the answers, right? Every single time an article asks a question in the headline, we know that answer is no. Every single time, it sounds like an interesting topic. By the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, it's more nuanced and boring than that, you know? So maybe we're just kind of ahead of the news cycle by doing that, but we shouldn't be. We should be like on the edge of our seats. Again, take the cryptids, right? Back in the day, the reason why there were so many newspaper articles about it is because people were interested, right? They, were, they wanted day-by-day -day accounts of what was happening. Like today, if somebody said there's a cryptid in my town running around, I don't know if I jump in my car and go chase it down like that you would back then. It'd be a party, opportunity for a party. I think I'd probably follow like all of the eyewitness reports on Twitter, see if it hit the news, um, not leave the comfort of my house. <laughs> it's just uh, it's, it's just us like softening into like no wonder. But that, that might mean one day we don't have monsters because we're just not we, – we, you lose the wonder. You lose the opposite of that as well. You lose, you lose the entire coin, right? You lose horror as well. It's probably good news for the Loch Ness Monster and Sasquatch. It's just like, oh, yeah, no, I'm totally not here, whatever. <laughs> and they just are that's in another, plain sight. That's another great example. Loch Ness Monster, Loch Ness right now, the past week, has had the most Loch Ness creature uh, hunters of all time. Really? The local, local tourism campaign decided to put together a thing, invited everybody up. People are out there with, like, instruments and stuff. 
and nobody cares. <laughs> Back in the day, one blurry photo from one random tourist in 1976 was enough to like create an iconic image that lasts to this day. But the fact that we're descending on Loch Ness in, in droves. But again, there's a lesson in that too, right? The fact that we can descend on Loch Ness in droves kind of shows we're probably past the point of interest. There. Yeah. So oh, talking about horror, um, horror like in many ways allows us to talk about things that may be taboo in society. On this podcast, we're always talking about what's taboo and what's indecent. Um, maybe can you tell me a little bit more about that, like throughout time, whether it's movies or books or word of mouth, how has horror affected the taboos of society or progress or uh, changing value systems? Yeah, no, it's great. Horror is perfect for that because horror hates taboos, right? It, it's, it wants to get it to you at a primal level. And all taboos are, it's a superficial, like, thing we put on that hides stuff, right? So horror, one of the taboos horror has always been good at is um, bot, the body, right? Our body is super fragile. It's, it's, it's just meat at the end of the day. And horror, especially like the body horror by Cronenberg or like maybe almost any horror film when somebody gets killed, you just see right there like, oh, my gosh. Because horror always like just always focuses on the guts a lot of time. Like, oh, we're just like rolls of sausage inside of a meat sack. <laughs> it's, it's it's terrifying, right? But it, but again, when Jason like whatever cuts your head off and like and, and then rips your arm off, you're like, oh, yeah, we are. That's it. That's it. Now we're just a pile of, pile of body parts. So that taboo around like what we are, we always think of ourselves as enlightened beings wandering around with, with big brains doing cool things. No, like one guy with machete can turn you into what you actually are, which is a bunch of meat that just happens to be sentient or whatever. Um, another one, another good one is like uh, homosexuality, right? So, so horror is actually big in the gay community because they see themselves in the other, right? You know, society historically, has, at least our society has, Turn them into monsters, right? They're you know gay people. Like we've done all kinds of horrible things and, and said the horrible things about them. Laws against them again dehumanize them. You can't get married. You can't do this. Don't come out. Don't tell people you who you are. Actually, de dehumanize them. So they often see themselves in the monsters, right? The people who the things that are othered. They get othered, and it allows us to deal with that, right? Um, vampires, right? That's another great one where where the they lot. There's always this part in, with a vampire story where they don't care who their victim is, right? They're so above gender and so above sexuality that they don't care. It's a human being to them, which again, you keep going, like, oh, it's just food to them. But that food is kind of equalizing, right? We're all equally food to these people. Why do we care what people do with, do with each other? We're just food. So again, the, the second you reduce us all to meat, it kind of takes away all the taboos, all the silly things that we're talking about, right? If, if you know you're going to die one day. Why are you worried about other people doing what they want to do with their lives, right? You shouldn't be. You're going to die one day. Just live your life in the, in the, before you turn into a pile of body parts. So horror is great at just kind of not just dealing with our taboos, but just ripping them right off the wall and be like, oh, you're worried about this again? Guys, don't forget, you're just this. <laughs> yeah. no, you're not better than this person. You're not better than those people. You are just all a bunch of blood and guts. That's all you are. And, and you know, live like that, please. <laughs> a little, little bit of humility. So horror is great at just making us humble and realizing, um, you know, dealing with those topics that we're not allowed to talk, talk about otherwise. Um, and there's tons of examples. I'm not the, probably the best to talk about it, but like tons of examples. Uh, even cannibalism, right? That's a, that's a, that's a monster. Cannibal is a monster, but it's also a real person, right? And nobody deals, and nobody deals with cannibalism, but the idea that you can eat somebody, even to survive, is a horrific concept. And like, who's going to deal with that? Like, 
Rom-coms? No, no horror is going to that. You know? I'd like to see that rom-com. That <laughs> <laughs> would be a good rom-com, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there is a little bit of existential relief there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, anything, for anything. Again, you get stressed from your job, you, you just you know, don't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like there's so much more important things. And the most important thing is staying alive, right? So, And that's kind of the lesson of all horror is you're always trying to be the final girl or the final person, right? Staying alive is the most important part. And you know, it kind of is still, again, there's other things, being nice to people and stuff, but that's part of staying alive, honestly. Yeah. But I do, that actually prompted another question because I feel like growing up in the nineties, like, um, a really fucked up movie trope you saw a lot was like the black person always dies first. Like the order in which people die says a lot about like the writer's own weird prejudices. Yeah. And I've never heard anybody discuss it in depth, but I've always had this idea about that because we also always made black characters comedic characters almost always did that to them um and 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 the the thing about a comedic character if you make them die first it kind of eases you into the story a bit (laughs) so there's all kinds of it's that's what i'm saying it's actually worse than the the black character dying first we caricatured them and that's what made them die first so um yeah that's and again that the horror did that That, that's not even like you know so it's not like horror is this blameless genre that like is is doing good for the world it also has its problems as well so what do you think um I mean, there's so much horror, especially if you're like a diehard horror fan, you probably are in areas that the general public doesn't know about. But like our big time horror that's hitting the theaters, that's amassing millions of dollars right now. What do you think horror that we're seeing in the mainstream today says about our society? That's a good question, Um, because it it does seem like it's all over the place. Right. So right now we're in like kind of the James Wanniverse where like. Everything is kind of just about spooking us, right? Something lurking in the corners, something jumping. Even when the stories aren't that great, that's always good. The independent movies are coming out are really good. I mentioned Cronenberg earlier. His son is doing amazing things that are uh, that are really horrific. I don't, I don't know. I, in my head, I want to say because we're in a we're in a level of society that is the most overwhelmed uh, of all of all. Again, a lot of a lot of generations complain about things that everybody else had to deal with at the same time. It's just our turn. But nobody's been more overwhelmed than us. Information overwhelm, um, fears. Like we, we know fears. We know what's happening. We know wars and pestilences all over the globe that we have to, that we get to worry about. Um, the impermanence of information. Uh, being being slaves to technology. I think that was that's another big one that we all are terrified of. Like, like we interact with screens more than we interact with anything else on the planet. So yeah, Black Mirror. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 probably it, right? The, when Black Mirror got so huge, bigger than even most horror, and that was technically, I guess, science fiction. But like science fiction being able to do science fiction horror being able to deal with. Oh no, that's it. That is it, right? That Black Mirror got so big because we were terrified of how realistic that horror was. You know, we're, we're watching this on a screen while this person's doing these things with this technology. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's just our relation. The other today is technology. That's the other. Uh, one of the others, I guess you should say. It's overwhelming. All the platforms you have to use every day. How many browser tabs I have to have open every second. It feels like we're becoming less and less human. We're almost like monsterizing ourselves. Yeah. Um, and that's scary. So maybe in that case, I would see the horror today is almost being redemptive versus, you know, me wondering if my kids being on... YouTube for three hours a day is going to destroy their their them in adulthood. You know that's a much bigger fear than like oh, I just I just miss just jumping. <laughs> it's just yeah. I miss the boogie I miss the boogeyman fears. Right, that's the ones that are like almost released. So maybe I'd say 
today's horror movies are just giving us that relief back. Remember when you were scared of the boogeyman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot easier than being scared of uh, everything everything else that you're, you're dealing with today. Yeah, because the unknown now is the things that are bigger than us that we can't control or understand. It's AI. It's the future of technology. It's whatever the billionaires are doing. That's that's the unknown now. Yeah, it's a lot more. It's a lot more surreptitiously scary, right? In the eighties and nineties, we had the kind of the Terminators, and that that. But that was there was such a face to that. Even the Matrix, there was such a face to that horror. Like it was a skeleton, a metal skeleton robot. That was a face. Today, it's so the subterfuge is so big. We don't know. We don't know the face of the monster anymore. Like we try to make it the billionaires, right? The Musks and the, the Zuckerbergs. But we know deep down that we're not scared of Musk or Zuckerberg. We're scared of something else that they're doing, that they're involved in, that they're a part of. And the fact that we literally are out of just out of our league, we're at their mercy. They put out one piece of, of technology, we're still buying it. I'm buying it tomorrow. You know, it's it, that lack of control of our lives is terrifying and gets us down a lot. Thank you so much, JW, for reminding me that I'm just a sack of flesh waiting to be hacked open. It really does put a lot in perspective, even if there are no bloodthirsty mutants out there waiting to suck my bones clean. I should be so lucky. But then again, you don't have to have scales or claws to be an absolute terror. The internet nurtures all kinds of weird configurations of humanity, including influencers of every stripe. Whether you see them as subhuman troglodytes or something to aspire to, there's no denying the impact on our society, our collective psyche, and the truth. So says next week's guest author and one-time online celebrity, Natalie Beach. When you look at like the Kardashians, you don't, no one is thinks that like they were born with bodies like that. But that almost like makes it feel like paradoxically more authentic because they're sort of showing the work, you know, like, like the, it, it took, it took a lot of like money and effort to have this body and, and maybe um, there's something instructional to us of, you know, maybe people think like, well, I can learn how to make myself that because they're showing me how. New episodes come out every other Thursday. Giving us a rating and a review is a huge help and make sure other people can find the show. Indecent is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. Go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. If you have something you want us to talk about, a guest you want to recommend, or if you have definitive proof of Bigfoot, shoot us an email at indecentthepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at indecentkiki. Follow me at It's Kiki Anderson. My producers are Max Wolfson and Pete Musto, and our executive producer is Jeremiah Tittle. I'm Kiki Anderson, and this has been Indecent, where NSFW meets LMAO. Bye! Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Ever heard of stoicism? 
Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.